We are in Matthew chapter 5. We've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at a lot of different topics. Today, we're going to continue talking about oaths. So if you turn to Matthew 5, 33, and the words will be on the screen and read along with me. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you not, cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So Jesus here is teaching on a common practice of taking an oath, making a vow. And there were certainly all through the Old Testament, people would give vows unto God. And so Jesus is addressing this here, and he's actually doing what he's done so, so many times, every time. What we've studied the last few sermons, he's taking it from the the physical action that people are doing, making a vow, and he's taking it deeper. And he's here, he's saying, it'd be better if you don't even make a vow, just say yes and say no, and then let that be your word. As we read this, I want to say what these odes are not. They're not the uh, four-letter cussing that we may think about. The Bible says plenty about that. And one verse that uh, points that out is Ephesians 4.29, where it says, Do not let any unwholesome talk out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, not my wishes, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And Proverbs 4.24 says, Keep your mouths free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. So the Bible, that's just two verses, but throughout the scripture, there are many occasions reminding us the power of our words and to use them to honor God, to speak in such a way that people realize there's something different. They may not understand completely that it's your worship of God, but they know they don't hear the same verbiage from you as those around them, and they wonder what's different. And it can give you an opportunity to explain why you don't use that kind of language, that kind of speech. It, it is easy to drop into when it's all around you. It becomes commonplace. It's easy to drop into that kind of language. I remember when I was pastoring in Louisville, I had a young man join our church. He was from up uh, Toledo, Ohio, I believe, and somehow he met this Georgia, uh, Kentucky girl that grew up in Southeast Christian, and he quickly found out that family did not talk the way he did. He said he had to learn not to use those words but that he had grown up in a home that it was commonplace and nothing was thought. He thought that was normal. He thought that's the way everybody talked. And you know the language I'm referring to. And so it was not acceptable in the home she was reared in, and he accepted that. But just 
because I grew up in a home similar to hers and was taught not to speak that way, it was interesting to me to hear him say that he thought that was completely normal, that, that in his family, nothing was thought about using that kind of language and just the differences there and how people were reared and to learn that that is the case with some people out there. But the Bible teaches us to let our, our, what we say be sprinkled with grace, with truth, to not defile our bodies, our minds, our language with those kind of speech. And Sue's mother uh, was a, a real stickler with me one time, especially on that. I thought I was watching my language, and we were down in her home, and I forget what had happened, but I said, oh, rats. That's okay, isn't it? But no, not, she said, why would you use God's creation in an expletive like that? And I went, okay, you got something else to work on in my life. But, that, but I couldn't disagree with her any time doing that. So that's not what Jesus is talking about here, though as I said, the Bible is replete with uh, instructions about how we are to uh, manage our speech. Jesus is talking about something that was very common, making a vow before the Lord. And it was a very common place. Usually when we make a vow, it's to something greater than ourselves. Vows easier to say than oaths, so I, uh, I may say that word more often. But when we make a vow, we'll, we usually say something like, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. And I, I remembered a movie from some years back with Burt Reynolds called The End. And he, he was a very self-absorbed person, uh, turned everything to his way, cheated everybody he could, and he ended up, he was losing his uh, uh, everything and losing the love of his life. And so he decides to commit suicide. And so he starts walking out into the ocean. And he gets out where a long ways from shore and he starts rethinking what he's doing, kind of deciding he doesn't really want to die. And so he starts swimming back to shore. And he starts praying, oh, Lord, give me the strength to be able to swim, make it to shore. Oh, Lord, help me. He said, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I'll, 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 I shall not murder and I shall not commit adultery. And, and well, I'll learn the others and I won't do those either. And, <laughs> And he continues on and says, oh God, just give me the strength to make it in. I don't want to die, Lord. And if I make it to the shore, I'm going to give you 50% of all I earn. And Lord, I want to point out, that's more than most people do. So I'm going to do that, Lord. Well, he keeps on and he starts getting closer to shore. And the next thing he says, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you the 10%. <laughs> and he said, Lord, I know I said 50%, but that's an awful lot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that 10%. So as he got in closer to shore, he started backing up on the promises he was making. And it's, it, it was a funny scene, not a great movie, but that was a funny scene to me, I guess theologically, if nothing else. But yet, we can do that. When we're in trouble, it's, Lord, get me out of this, and I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going I'm to give to the church. I'm going to work. I'm going to tell others of Christ. And then once the issue is over, we conveniently kind of forget our promises and go back to our standard 
way of life. Well, Jesus, or God, excuse me, refers to this in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. And there he says, If you make a vow to the Lord, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin if you don't keep the vow. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. In other words, it wasn't anything required to do. Making a vow is a purely voluntary action on the people's part, on your part. But he goes on, Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely, nobody was twisting your arm, nobody was holding a gun to your head. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord, your God, with your own mouth. So that thought in there about vows, that he says the Lord takes them seriously when you make a promise, and he expects you to keep it. Not keeping it is automatically a sin, because you've said one thing and you're doing another. So it, it vows are important, and God holds us. If we stand up in a court of law, we're called to testify to something. And they bring us up there, and they raise your right hand and put your left hand on the Bible and repeat after me. I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And then later, they find out that you didn't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What's going to happen? More people, many people, have gotten in trouble and thrown in jail because they did perjure themselves, did not tell the truth, even though they were not convicted guilty of the crime. But they committed a crime by perjury. And so vows are important. We understand that. And Jesus is teaching that. He says, but it's better, don't even go there. You can't change the color of your hair. You can't change what the sky does. You can't change the mountain. And typically when we make a vow, we use something seen as powerful, strong, greater than ourselves to substantiate what we're saying. That's the reason we do it, is to reinforce, to make the impact of our words stronger. And so we make a vow on something greater than ourselves, even though we have no control over that. We can't change what it is, change what it does. It has no impact. It's just really vain words. And Jesus says, don't do that. Just say yes or no. And I really think we can take that phrase of Jesus and apply it to the adage we all know. Say what you mean, mean what you say. If you say something, if you give your word, if you say you're going to do something, then be honest and fulfill it, even if, really even when, it causes you problems. Many of us have had that occasion where we've promised we would be somewhere and help somebody with something, and then that day comes, and ooh, boy, I'd rather sleep in. Boy, I'm tired. I don't want to do that. And we start backing out of what we said. And people, when we do that too much, will learn they can't count on what we say. And when Christians do that, and then we try to tell them about this Savior that we love, who redeemed us from our sins, why should they believe that either? If we lied on this part, why wouldn't we be lying about that? If we, if we 
kind of glossed over the details in this story. Maybe we're uh, glossing over the details about what Jesus did. So part of speaking, saying what you mean, meaning what you say, just saying yes or no helps people to learn they said something, I don't agree with it, but they stuck by what they said. They lived out what they said. They were true. They had integrity. And that helps our testimony when we do that. And I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at, to just say yes or just say no. We have that example in the Scripture in 1 Peter 2.12. Peter talks, says, live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So if you're living the right kind of life before God and you're accused of wrong, one, others will know it's not real because they know you as a stand-up person in this area. And even those who make the accusations will realize, even though they probably won't back down from what they said, that they're not being truthful. And your integrity, your veracity will carry through. And then, of course, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men, before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As Christians, that's one of the things that's incumbent upon us, to live our life in such a way that even if we don't give a ch get a chance to testify in a personal testimony about Jesus Christ, people will know there's something different. We should have a joy, not happiness, but a joy through times of turmoil. When we're struggling with those turmoil times in our life, it'd be foolish to be happy about it. Who wants to be happy about the trouble but we can have joy because we know we have a Father who knows what's going on with us, who knows our needs, who knows what we need, and is going to see us through. And we know that this moment is not the end of things, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that we will come through it, and God will be blessing us, and He will be glorified. If that's what we're living for, that He be glorified, we can go through those trials because it makes us strong and because it lifts high the name of God. And so that's what Peter and Jesus were talking about there, to live in such a way that people just see what we do and know there's something different. And if we're lucky, they'll say, what's the difference? How come you can keep going through this hard time. It would have killed me. It would have reduced me to a fetal position to be going through what you're going through, and yet you're going through it with a smile on your face. And you can say, yes, because I have one who lives within me that gives me strength, that gives me peace, and that is carrying me through, who said he will never leave me nor forsake me. It gives you an opportunity to testify to the goodness of God in your life. And so that's part of those attitudes that Jesus wants us to develop. He brings up another case in Matthew chapter 21 about the two sons. 
again talking about what we say and how we act. In verse 28, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. And later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Jesus asked them, which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, we know the answer to that question. The, the first son, even though he said no, that did it. The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him, and even after you saw this, you still did not repent and believe. Jesus talking to the leaders of his day, and they, of course, looked down on the tax collectors. They were seen as lowlifes, and certainly the prostitutes and the other dregs of society and they thought themselves better than those people they were looking down on. And here Jesus has the audacity to say, they're getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you because they have recognized their sin, believed in the one who came to die for their sins. They are redeemed. And you who are so well-learned, who have studied, who act so religious haven't believed. And so Jesus in this points out again the importance of the heart. Now he didn't condone what the tax collectors did. They, they, they overcharged the people. They were uh, oppressive. He doesn't condone the prostitute's life. He told the one that came to him who was caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So he didn't condone their actions, but he realized they were accepting Christ as he needed to be accepted. And these who were whitewashed tombs, he called them in another place, really had a hard heart towards God, thought they were above the need of him, and never accepted Jesus as the Son of God. And so it is that heart issue. And... We need to understand that when God comes into our hearts, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, we can look at an individual and their lifestyle and be condemning towards them. We can, we can condemn them as a worthless person. And we can say, you've got to change all this before you come to my church. But that's backwards. We need each one to come to accept Jesus Christ, to let him infill their heart. Then the Holy Spirit does his job. It's not my job to tell somebody how to live. It's the Holy Spirit's job. I can share guidance. I can share what God's Word says. I can encourage. I can support. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to change them. And God will work in their lives to change what He knows needs to be changed first. God sees their life and looks at it and addresses the most critical issues have moved from there. Some years ago, when I was a college student in Atlanta, I struggled with this kind of with this issue. No, I wasn't a prostitute, and I, I didn't want a tax collector. 
But maybe like you, I had sin in my life. I had things that I, I, I knew I needed to yield to the Lord and let Him have. But I would get in fibrillation, I call it. You know, that's where the heart just doesn't beat right and it sits there and it quivers. And it, 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 your body suffers because it's not getting that regular supply of blood. The heart's working hard, but it's not effectively pumping the blood. So I, that's what I call what I was at. I just didn't know when. I, I was saying, God, I've got to take care of this. I've got to take care of that. I need to fix this. I need to let you have that. What on earth do I do? And God finally got through this thick head. And he said, just yield to me. Let me tell you what needs to be fixed. Let me tell you what's concerning me most. And as I did that, and still do that, God will speak to something on my heart and, says, and point out, Wes, this isn't right. Yield this to me. And as I do that, then he goes to the next issue. Because his desire, his goal in our life is to bring us to godliness, to being like God, to being that image of Christ in this world. And he wants to root those sins and those contrary ways out of our lives. And he can do that better than I can. And he knows which ones are having the most impact and need to be corrected. And so as I yield and surrender to Him and say, Lord, You show me and help me to do it, and I will by the grace of God. And one by one, those things step down. In this passage with the Son, the first one said no. And I know some of you probably thought, if I said no to my dad, I'd have been whomped. He'd have got me. I'd have gotten the belt. He didn't speak back to Dad. But this son did. He said, no, I'm not going to go do it, Dad. But after he went, obviously it stayed on his mind. He realized apparently the error of his ways. It may have just been plain stupid. He may have just logically thought, you know, Dad's the one kind of footing the bill, and that's how I got this easy life. Maybe it'd be smarter for me to work in the vineyard and keep Dad happy. So it may not have been high motives, but for whatever reason, he changed his mind and he went to do the work in the field. He ultimately obeyed. He sinned at first, but he obeyed. He changed. He repented. He turned from what he was doing to do what was right. The other son, oh, he seemed like the glory boy. Oh, sure, Dad, I'll go do that. But then he didn't. We don't know if he was lying from the word go, if he knew he never intended to go work. We don't know if he just got a sudden strike of laziness and didn't do it. But whatever reason, he said he would and he didn't. And that's what Jesus was pointing out here. The important thing is that change, that repentance. And even though the one first said, no, I'm going to do what I want to do, he repented and he obeyed his father. All of us are that first son. All of us keep struggling, thinking, boy, I want to do this. I know God said that, but I want to do this. Surely, surely this is okay. I can get away with this. Surely God won't mind if I keep this for myself. 
But then as the Holy Spirit works and convicts us, and we realize we're holding on to something God has said let go of, if we will repent of that, God accepts that repentance, He accepts that change of heart, and He comes in a new and powerful way. And as Jesus said, that son was the son that was right. And so we have another occasion here of our verbiage of Jesus teaching about these attitudes and the right attitudes to have, the importance of repentance, that it's okay to change your mind. Sometimes we will stubbornly hold on to something just so people don't think we're a wuss or, or, or we're weak because we vacillate. If you mess up, fess up and do the right thing. If, if you've said this, but you realize it's wrong, confess it to God. He's not waiting to thump you down with his finger. He rejoices that you've seen the light and are coming to Him, and He will empower, He will embrace you with a grace like you've never known. He won't condemn, He won't cast you aside, He'll welcome you with open arms. And so we need to do that, but sometimes our pride just won't let us. One final passage in John chapter 1. Jesus is starting to gather His disciples, specifically the disciples is a broad term. It, it means anybody that follows. But he's starting to gather those who would be his apostles, the 12, that inner group. And in verse 43, Jesus, it says, decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Peter, like and or Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, now what, what would we think of Nathanael having an attitude like that? I mean, that's, that's racist. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. The word in the King James there is translated guile. In him is no guile. It's also translated in some translations as deceit. But it's a deceit when we get into the Greek meaning of the word that is an intentional deceit. It's an attempt to trick somebody into something. Uh, we, can, we can deceive people just by being mistaken, telling them something that happened last week or last year, and our memory fails us, and we've told them a lie, but we weren't trying to tell them a lie. We just didn't remember it correctly, or some other reason. But this deceit, this guile here that Jesus is talking about is an intentional desire to trick somebody into doing something. It's even akin to the word decoy. And we know what a decoy is. If you want to go duck hunting, you put decoy ducks out on the pond. They think there's other ducks there. They land, you shoot them. It's, it's intended to do them harm, but it's tricking them into thinking there's other ones like them there. And that's the word he says there. And Jesus says this of Nathaniel, Pretty high praise as far as I can tell. Here is an Israelite in whom 
there is no guile. There wasn't any trickery. He wasn't trying to deceive people. And Jesus applauds that. We too often exercise guile in our lives. We say one thing and mean another. And unfortunately, we've gotten used to it. We like to point to our politicians how they'll say what they need to say to get elected and then do what they want to do to stay in power. There is that goes on. It is true. We can't wash, wash them all with that brush, paint them all with that brush, but it happens. But it happens in our day-to-day -day life too where people will say one thing never intending to do it or will say something designed to entice people in with the intent to trick them. And we call it, the kind of nice word for it is having an agenda. Having a plan that we want to put in place and so we manipulate the data and the information to get people to agree to what we want, not necessarily what's best. And Jesus is appraising Nathaniel for not being that way. And I think there are some reasons why we're guilty and what it causes about these agendas. One is we see it so much in our world that we just get to assume everybody's got, a, got an agenda they're trying to pursue. Isn't necessarily true. The other thing is we often transfer ourselves unto others. And if we're honest with ourselves, we realize we have an agenda that's working to, we think, to our benefit. And so if someone else is saying something, doing something, we assume they also have an agenda. And it's an unfortunate that we look at people with that kind of cynicism because there are individuals who are happy to serve others, who have that servant heart, who do things strictly to help others. They're not trying to get ahead. They're not trying to become famous. They just see a need and they're trying to help. They don't have an agenda, as I've defined it there, of working to their own good. But we have become jaded and callous to that. And so we need to try to open ourselves not get fooled, that's not what I'm talking about, but not automatically assuming someone else is working to our detriment. Jesus in that observation tells us that the way God would have us interact with each other and through these other passages is with honesty. Say yes, say no. Do what you say, mean what you say. And if you say the wrong thing up front, repent. Do the right thing. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Let your yes be yes, your no, no. If you change your mind, you realize you're wrong. Do the right thing, even though it may embarrass you. Be honest in your dealings with others. Examine your motives. And I want to look at Ephesians 4.29 one more time, where it says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Are we thinking about other people's needs as we talk with them, as we seek to help them? I, uh, one last story I'll share. I know we're close to our time, but some years back, I had a young family in my church that was 
struggling financially, difficulty. And uh, the, the young man was at UofL at studying engineering. And we had a man in our church who had his engineering degree, was working for a company designing something for wrapping products, how they do all that. So I thought maybe if I connected them, the engineer, with this other young man's studies in engineer, would find a way he could be a journeyman or, or something to help him gain another, a better job. He was working at a Target store. Nothing against Target in this case. It just wasn't a good paying job. So the guy, Dick, was his name. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him. I'll help him. Well, the next thing I know, I'm finding out from my friend that he started out with that old spiel. What is it you'd like in life? Would you like to vacation in Hawaii? Would you like a new car? Well, I can show you how to do it. If you'll just get on board with me and sell this product, you can earn that money. You see, folks, to me, that wasn't a pure motive. That's that pyramid marketing, and that's that kind of stuff that he, instead of addressing that person's need, he was selling them another bill of goods. And that disappointed me. And uh, I, uh, it just disappointed me because I don't think the motives were pure. Yes, it could help him, but he, anyway, he chose not to do it. So when we think about how we interact with others, are we doing this to their benefit or to ours? Are we saying what we say to build ourselves up or to tear people down? Are we helping them find God through an integrity of walking with Christ in what we say and do? That's what Jesus is calling us to with these oaths. Don't come in making promises to God in your church and then living like the devil outside. Worship Him faithfully, honestly, genuinely, and let your light so shine before men that they may see the difference in your life and want to know how you got it. Let's stand as we sing. I'm right this time. Our closing hymn is Open Mine Eyes That I May See. Wonderful hymn, wonderful prayer. Because we are blinded. We're blinded. If we don't know Christ, then we're blinded by sin. The things that I've said make no sense. If you, don't have, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, they're foolishness because the world knows the way to get ahead is take care of me. So that's the first place to have your eyes open is accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, realizing your need for Him. But then as a Christian, we have things that can cloud our vision. Uh, and I won't try to list them. You know what they are. And so... Open our eyes, Lord. Show me what you need to take care of in my life and then empower me to yield that listening.